morning and welcome to WMNF's Midpoint, your midweek, mid-morning source for news and public affairs from a local perspective. I'm your host, Shelley Reback, and I'm here today with WMNF volunteers, Jessica Green running the soundboard, and Barbara Fling, who will be taking your calls and comments, we hope. Uh, we've been following the news out of the legislature in Tallahassee since the session started in January. And now that it ended this past Monday, I thought it was appropriate to do a legislative wrap-up and review some of the bills that were voted out and that are now going to the governor for his signature to be passed into law. So we'll be talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly with our good friend of the show, William March, politics columnist for the Tampa Bay Times. Uh, Wendy's in the studio with us. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, Shelley. Nice to be here. And uh, soon we'll be joined by Andrew Learned, uh, Florida House Representative from the Brandon Riverview Fishhawk area. And maybe Andrew will talk to us about some of the good bills that passed because he's a real positive guy. There must have been a few good things to come out of this session. Andrew's been redistricted, too, so we'll be interested to hear how he anticipates his next run will go given the changes in his district boundaries. And you can join our conversation, too. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this year's legislative session. So give us a call at 813-239-9663, email us at dj at wmnf.org, or text us at 813-433-0885 and give us your views on where you think Florida is headed. Uh, let's just review a little bit before we get started with Wendy. Uh, the affordable housing crisis, the property insurance crisis, the need to address dangerous and lax condo safety after Surfside, and the looming Medicaid cliff that so many Floridians will be pushed off. I guess, uh, oh wait, we can't talk about those things because those are some of the issues that are affecting so many Floridians that the legislator, legislature just punted on, didn't do a damn thing about any of these problems. I wonder why. Whatever happened to the Condo Safety Commission that was proposed? And egged on by Governor Ron DeSantis, Republican lawmakers pushed a number of high-profile proposals to his desk, many of which garnered national media attention and widespread criticism. They established a new election fraud police force, a private police force for Ron DeSantis. They implemented restrictions on classroom instructions about sexuality and gender. And they doubled down on their crackdown against illegal immigration. They also imposed term limits on school board members of 12 years. And the anti-solar net metering bill got better, but still will eventually decimate the rooftop solar industry by allowing electric utilities to take for free the excess energy generated by homeowners and businesses that paid to put solar systems on their roofs. Uh, and we need to talk about the budget that the legislature sent to the governor, too. Remember there was that proposal to punish those school districts, mostly the larger urban and, let's be honest, more democratic school districts that enacted mask mandates back in the worst days of COVID. DeSantis hated those mask mandates. His legal team must have done some legal research, though, and decided that that kind of punishment by taking away funding for those districts was liable to be viewed by the courts as improperly discriminatory and unconstitutional. So now they came up with a new plan and put it in the budget. There's now some $200 million that can be awarded as a bonus to those school districts that did not enact mass mandates during the height of COVID, and only to those school districts. 
It's not depriving any districts of their regular funding. It is bonusing those districts who follow the governor rather than the advice of medical experts and the CDC. So Martin County, you get ice cream this year, but your big sister Hillsboro, no ice cream for you. That'll teach them. So, Wendy, let's start with you. You're a keen observer of Florida politics. Where do you think Florida's headed after this legislative session? Well, we're headed, for one thing, surely for, or probably for a special session, likely a special session over redistricting, because that's, that's one thing that the legislature was required to do that, that didn't get finished. The legislature did pass new maps for their own districts, the state House districts and state Senate districts. And they also passed maps for new congressional districts, but those are maps that Ron DeSantis says he will veto. The result of that is potential candidates are left in confusion as to where they might run for office uh, until this gets straightened out. And it's possible there will be a special session. It's also possible there will be court action. There are already two lawsuits filed over the lack of a new congressional map. And I noticed that uh, we have Andrew on the line. Andrew, are you with us? I am. Okay, thanks for joining us. Andrew's on the phone with us since we're still following our COVID protocols protocols here at WMNF. We can only have one guest in the studio at a time. So we appreciate you calling in, Andrew. Um, now you got redistricted. Your house, uh, your house district got redistricted, and you're going to be running in a new district. Tell us about that. Yeah, new district number, uh, same place, <laughs> a little bit different uh, boundaries. But I still represent Brandon and Riverview. Um, the part that was added to my district is all of like Lithia and the Fishhawk area. But uh, the change is that I went from District 59 to 69. So just kind of. A district flip to the bay, and that's the one that I'll be running in this time. So not that much different from your previous district. You just have to get to know the people in Fishhawk a little bit better. Is that it? Exactly. Yeah, we got a big kickoff there next week. But uh, but no, it's it's it was the swingiest uh, seat held by a Democrat last year, and uh, it's looking to be the same this year. Uh, I was the only Democrat who beat a, who won in the Trump district in 2020, and then this is a, again an R plus one. So we're in the same R plus one fight of our lives as last time. R plus one. That that's not not horrible though for you, is it? Uh, it's, it's not horrible, but we got work to do. Yeah, you have a tough tough road to hoe there. Well, let's talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly that came out of the legislature this session. Gosh, where do you want to start? Um, well, Andrew, let's start with the good because you're, I, I, I think of you as a positive guy. You're always like looking for the rainbow after the storm here. So, uh, give us a sense of some of the good things that came out of this legislative session. And I know th- this part of our show will be very short. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, you know, at the, at the top end, I would say, um, even some of the truly horrible things that passed this year, I do think we did a good job of making, some of the really bad bills better, right? So some original attacks, uh, $200 million attack on our local schools, uh, we were able to rebuff at least most of that, kind of take the edge off. Um, there was a couple things on um, uh, like the don't say gay bill and some others where we were able to at least alleviate some of the harm, uh, which I do think is part of our job up there, right? And, uh, and I think whenever we can do that, 
uh, I try to count those things as wins, even though, you know, the, the end result is bad. Um, it could have been worse. And I think that was a big, a big takeaway. The, the, attack the, 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 the work by the Democrats up there was extraordinarily um, difficult because you are in such a minority in the state house and the state Senate. There's only so much you can do. Um, and even on some of those really, truly horrible bills like Stop Woke and Don't Say Gay, where there was enormous outside pressure and so many demonstrations and protests and commercials and, and uh, you know, so much pressure on the legislature, um, even with all that, they still went ahead and passed those really, you know, odious, bigoted bills. Um, and, you know, it must have been really emotionally draining for the Democrats up there, was it? You know, I'm a, you probably know this about me, but I'm a trigger puller from the military, right? So okay. uh, I always say mission focused and, uh, you know, you're going to lose some fights, but you hear 3,000 something bills, right? So you don't have a lot of time to, to get too emotionally invested because if, if you do, you lose sight of the, the bigger picture and, uh, you know, we've got people with affordable housing issues. You know, we're all paying like, you know, a dollar more at the pump than we were like six weeks ago. Uh, Florida's refusing to divest our Ukraine investment or our Russia investment despite the Ukraine invasion. So, I mean, there are so many areas where we, we have to fight. You really can't let yourself get bogged down on any one on any one issue. At least that's my that's my take, and that's what I try to do. Well, I noticed that there were a couple other good things that came out of the legislature that you were able to accomplish. Um, education funding, not only was, was the original funding for the districts that had mask mandates protected, uh, but all state employees and teachers are getting a raise, aren't they? They are. Uh, it's not enough, but they are getting a raise, so that's, that's the good news. Um, you know, there was some uh, last-minute attempts by the Republicans. They were able to get in um, some of the punitive aspects on the 12 districts that they were targeting. But at the end of the day, it just means that those districts aren't eligible for a bonus that they never got in the first place. Right. So no teacher will see a reduction um, because of anything that the Republicans tried to push. And, you know, again, I, I count that as a win because originally they were, I mean, directly targeting Hillsborough's teachers with uh, pretty dramatic pay cuts and um you know we were able to push that back right so now uh i think the education budget that went to the governor includes some 800 million for school districts to increase minimum salaries of teachers to at least 47,500 as well as 8,142 uh dollar increase in per pupil um funding which is an increase over last year, right? That is correct. Yep. And then uh, diapers will be tax-free for at least one year. I noticed that was a big victory. <laughs> yeah, we had a couple. Um, that was the bill that I was co-sponsoring. Uh, another one that we were able to, to get in on that tax holiday was uh, Energy Star Appliances and the fight against climate change. Okay. So, uh, not only are we doing something for new parents, but uh, if you've been, uh, if you're listening and you've been waiting to replace that refrigerator with a newer model that uh, might be a little bit better for the environment, uh, this is the year to do it. Wow. And I just went through, I just bought new appliances this year. Poor me. Well, why, why did they limit that tax-free diaper uh, 
rule to one year, though. Why one year? I mean, kids are born every year. I think that, you know, there was a lot of um, a lot of money in the budget. This is a record budget. It was 10% greater than it's ever been before. And a big part of that was because of the American Rescue Plan and a lot of the uh, COVID relief money that was coming from the federal government. So I think overall there was a hesitancy to lock in anything beyond um, this period of pandemic funding. Uh, so I don't think anybody is saying it's only for a year. I think what you probably hear people say is let's do a year. Let's see how much it costs. Let's see what the budget looks like next year and then make a decision then. All right. Okay, I want to remind our listeners that you can join our conversation and we'd love to hear your thoughts about this year's session and and this year's budget uh you can give us a call at 813-239-9663 you can email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885 and give us your views on where you think florida's headed but also what what impressed you the most about the legislative session this this time was it the bad was it the good was it the ugly uh where were where were your thoughts on on the uh, the things that came out of the legislative session this year. And let me turn to Wendy and ask you, uh, you're a keen observer of what goes on in Tallahassee. What, what was your impression, uh, overall impression of what happened out of the legislature this year? Well, Shelley, this was an election year session and election year sessions are always heavily political to some extent divisive, but this was far beyond the normal level of election year politicization and divisiveness. Um, That's at least partly, I think, because of recent political history in the country, polarization and divisiveness in the nation as a whole. It's also partly because of Governor Ron DeSantis, who has become a major rising star in the Republican Party in a very short period of time, um, just since his election in 2018, previously a little-known congressman. He's now a front-runner for the 2024 nomination. and For president. For president. Uh, and, uh, Although and he claims he's just focused on his gubernatorial re-election. We well, all know that that's not there the are, case. There are many, many signs that he is looking to a 2024 run. Uh, and that greatly intensified what would already have been a, a heavily political session. Um, and a, as you pointed out, Andrew Learned, Representative Learned, puts a, a good face on things, looks for the, looks for the rainbow, looks for the, the blue skies. But in fact, um, not to differ too much with Andrew, but this was... Um, a bitter, intense, and highly emotional session, far more than usual instances of legislators breaking down, crying during committee meetings, um, late-night debates with raw, emotional, personal stories being told in debates, Lauren Book talking about having been a a survivor of a gang rape, Uh, uh, others talking about other women legislators talking about their experiences having had abortions or, or friends of theirs uh, in arguments over the 15-week abortion ban. So, And Michelle Rayner, who's Florida's first and only out queer black woman in the Florida House, uh, basically feeling like between don't say gay and stop woke, um, her existence was being erased. Well, that kind of thing 
permeated this session to a greater degree than any I have ever seen. Yeah. Andrew, did you feel that when you were up there? I mean, it may not be your personal, um, you know, your personal way of dealing with these issues, but did you have that sense from the other uh, legislators that you worked with? I, I saw a video clip, for example, of uh, Fentress Driscoll, who I know to be a very composed, poised, um, and articulate, very effective legislator, and and yet I saw her break down during a discussion of, um, I believe it was the Don't Say Gay bill. Did you get a sense of that feeling from the, the chambers and the committee meetings when you were there? Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I was in the, that was in the Judiciary Committee. I remember uh, I remember that moment with Fentress and uh, the one you mentioned with Rep. Rayner. So, no, it, I mean, it was definitely... It was definitely trying on a lot of people, and uh, I, I'm not going to – I won't deny that at all. Um, <clears throat> I, I know that, um, that that's unusual. I mean, I think Wendy's point is a good one, that as political as these sessions get in an election year, I do think that the, the emotion this year was so heightened. And also, uh, you know, what about all these protests – um, that seemed to be um, that seemed to be more than usual too. Um, how did that How did that feel up there, Andrew? When you well, were you gotta, there, you got to remember that I got elected during COVID, so uh, it was just kind of different having people in the building in the first place. Right, a lot of people yelling at us, right? <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, no, there was uh, there were people arrested during the um, the anti-abortion. Um, uh, you know, when that vote happened, uh, it was. You know, the don't say gay bill, when that was up for a vote in the Senate, there was about a thousand people kind of occupying the rotunda, um, making, you know, so, you know, you couldn't, couldn't get in or out without walking by them. So, yeah, there was definitely a lot of protests this session. And, you know, do you think that, do you think it, does it it help? Does it make a difference um, to have the people there in person? Um, like you said, you were elected during COVID, your first session. So does it, does it make a difference? Do you get a sense that uh, legislators are moved by, by the people that come to Tallahassee and, and protest? Yeah, 100%. I mean, let me, let me answer that in two parts. Uh, first of all, um, I do think there's a lot of people that are, uh, and I'll put myself in that category because candidly, I'm you know, the only Democrat who won in a race in a district where Trump won. And I'm, you know, because of that, a pretty moderate member in a lot of ways, um, which means that my vote, a lot of times, I don't know where I'm going to be on everything. So I'm talking to people back home. And if somebody from the district shows up in Tallahassee, that that has a huge impact. Um, I'd, I'd be the first to admit that. But on a broader point, I will say 95% of votes are locked in uh, in November of the election year, right? And that's the vote that everybody makes at their polling precinct. Because the reality is most votes are determined by a member's partisanship long before they get up there. And if you want to actually see a change in your legislature and how they're going to vote on the vast majority of things, um, that's that's something you got to do in November. November and replacing that person. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's something that I've talked about a lot on this show every time we talk about uh, some of these uh, bad and ugly laws that are coming out of the legislature, that it's not enough to go up and protest. It's not enough to write an email or even call your district rep's office. Uh, what's most important is to get your neighbors and friends who feel as you do to get out and vote uh, the way you would like to see them vote in November. Um, that's that's at least my my uh, opinion, and I, I also feel that you know so many things that affect the daily lives of Floridians are uh, impacted by what the state legislature does even more so than by what Congress in, in Washington does. And so, you know, the things that affect your daily life, whether you can pay your property insurance bill or whether the condo you live in is going to collapse for lack of inspection, um, those are the kinds of things that the state legislature really affects. Um, <clears throat> you know, lest we forget that it was Ron DeSantis that shut our state down during COVID and not uh, President Biden. So, yeah, he, he that's uh, a day-to-day he, life is much more impacted at the state level than Yeah, and he wants to he wants to uh to forget that. He wants to he wants to suggest that uh, any shutdowns and and impacts of COVID were the result of the Biden administration and he wants to put that all on Biden and in fact that's not the case. Um so Wendy, tell me why is it so uh, difficult for Republicans who have constituents of their own to take on these issues like the affordable housing crisis, like the property insurance crisis, like the need to address condo safety. Um, you know, you would think that those are things that their own constituents will be just as concerned about. Well, um, this gets to an issue that has struck me about the Florida legislature for years. Uh, a couple of the important things that you mentioned, property insurance legislation, condo safety legislation, both failed late in the session after legislators spent the entire session working and reworking and trying very hard to actually pass legislation on those subjects, but they died right at the end of the session. And what you see every year in the Florida legislature, there's a strict time limit. They're allowed to meet for only 60 days. And every year... Well, of course, thousands of bills are filed, fewer than a tenth of them ever even receive a hearing in committee, much less an actual floor vote. And at the end of the session, toward the end of the session, bills die simply because time runs out. And once a bill dies at the end of a session, it can't hold over to the next session. It has to be restarted. And this time limit... Um, puts a strict limit on how much the legislature is able to do. It's a simple matter of time. They run out of time to consider legislation. If the session had gone on for another month, you might have seen a condo bill. You might have seen a property insurance bill. Um, but those are not the kinds of things that a special session would be called for. So, no. I mean, it could be, but it won't be, right? No, and nobody, and nobody likes special sessions. Uh, the legislators are not professional Legislators, they, they make part-time salaries, and the vast majority of them have occupations at home, as Andrew does. Uh, nobody likes special sessions, and they're not going to call one for something like that. They call them when they absolutely have to. Well, is that, is that what you think um, is going on, Andrew, too? It's a question of time? 
Andrew? Oh, we lost Andrew? Uh, okay. Well, uh, let's see if we can't get him back. Uh, Andrew, if you're listening, I don't know. Uh, we lost you, but uh, we'll try and get you back. Um, in any event, um, what about this election police force that Ron DeSantis did get? Um, what about that? Can we... Uh, well, I... Um I would have to include that in the list of culture war issues that came through the legislature this time. It it was uh, it's largely in deference to the right wing of the Republican Party, which still believes there was a huge election fraud in 2020, and even believes that Florida, even though Donald Trump won the state, that there may have been hundreds or thousands of fraudulent votes cast. Which uh, there illegally. were not, let's be clear. I mean, from all investigations, from all sources, that Florida had one of the smoothest uh, elections in history. Well, yes. And there's always some small amount of fraud, basically at the individual level in every election, people voting twice. Um, and, and this year, I think there was something like Somewhere between two and three hundred complaints of fraud registered statewide, of which seventy were considered serious enough to refer to to the formerly existing law enforcement agencies. I don't know how many, if any, have been acted on. Well, the ones we've heard about were mostly out of the villages and were mostly Republicans voting more than once. Yes, and we've also seen recently um, a situation where... Um, Voter registration canvassers uh, have been changing, in South Florida at least that we know of, have been changing people's registration without their consent. From Democrat to Republican. Yes. Um, the, um, and there's some speculation that, so, that, that some um, sources close to um, the, the companies that were working for Florida Power and Light were also involved in the hiring of those uh, voter registration um, individuals who were changing votes. Well, in any case, I mean, we can hope that this new election law enforcement organization, the new election police force, we can at least hope that it won't do any harm. Um, maybe it actually will do some good. Maybe it will do something about situations like the the shadow candidates, the fake candidates who were who were put up in, in state also senate by races Republicans. last year. Yeah, that was, a, that was a Republican effort. And in one case, the shadow candidate, the fake candidate, almost certainly changed the outcome of the election. Uh, so one can hope that, that something will be done about these things. But isn't the existence of the election police force intimidating? And doesn't it chill people uh, from voting just by its just by its mere existence, uh, the suggestion I that there's that there's that they're going to be out there, you know, in the polls looking for fraud, you know, well, I, I there's think that's not, intimidating. There's not enough of them to send them out to the polls. Now there there are other poll watchers, and the problem of intimidation by poll watchers and normal police has been an issue in the past. Uh, I think it remains to be seen whether this election law enforcement task force will add to that or not. One point I'd want to make 
about this is, and, and you mentioned demonstrations during the session, there were um, more than I'm accustomed to seeing, uh, but there are always a lot. But again, these were, I think, more intense and more bitter than usual. And they weren't all by liberal or leftist groups uh, acting against the culture war issues. A lot of them were by rightist groups pushing those culture war issues. Um, Joe Gruder, state senator, um, made the point that he was called a rhino by demonstrators because he didn't push harder for more restrictions on voting uh, and more investigations of alleged democratic fraud than he did. So Republicans, I think this gives you an indication of just how polarized the nation as a whole is. Uh, there were there were rightist demonstrators up there putting pressure on Republicans, just as there were liberal or leftist demonstrators and and advocacy groups. Andrew, what are your thoughts about that? Did you sense that too? Andrew, are you with us? Uh, yeah, hundred percent. He's uh, he's absolutely right. I mean, there there are two sides to every issue, right? And I I know. You know, we're kind of taking it from from one perspective right now, but um, there there is a whole other side of the political spectrum that was very upset that you know the republic Republicans didn't go further with some of their attacks, and uh, you know they were they definitely made their voice heard. Yeah, they're worried about being primaried from the right, you know, with some kind of Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert type candidate, I guess. Um, as well. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it is very difficult to moderate um, any of this legislation when you have so much polarization. Um, we have an email from Steve um, who says, uh, love the input from Andrew. Oh, you have a fan in Steve, Andrew. And he says, please try and answer a few questions. And I guess this is directed to you. Uh, exactly when did the species formerly known as, quote, moderate Republican become extinct? And also, beyond single-issue voters, why do so many women vote for Republicans? And do Trump folks think that outlawing abortion will help them win at the polls? Want to take up any of those, Andrew? I think this is directed to you initially, at least. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would have considered myself a moderate Republican back in the day. Um I was president of College Republicans at University of Tampa when I was. Woo! So, uh, <laughs> you sure you want that out there? there? You know we're on the radio. Oh, it's all right. It's all right. It's who I am. Um, but I think you know the reality is a lot of us. I, I would be willing to bet a large majority of um, Floridians would say they're socially liberal and fiscally conservative. And um, if one party can figure out how to do that. Uh, they'd win elections for a very long time if they were if they could be consistent. So, um, and I, you know, I think that when the I think the specific question was when did we lose that? And I would tell you, you know, when, uh, you know, when Republican political consultants started to see that their biggest threat was not uh, general elections but primaries, and that comes down to fundraising and redistricting, the roots of all political evils, in my opinion, because. If you if you do need to fight harder to solidify a political base than you do reaching out to moderates and NPAs and kind of people across the aisle that are willing to, you know, elect a good person and not necessarily a political ideologue, 
um, you end up getting where we are now, which is, you know, extremes in both directions and nobody talking in the middle. Uh, I think that the second part of the question was about women voters and, um, you know, in particular, and while I, you know, maintain that I'm probably not the the best person to have that <laughs> to speak on behalf of uh, women everywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, my you know my my wife is a is a um, you know Republican um, a Republican woman, and she you know just wants to be left alone. So I think a lot of times uh, both parties go a little too far. I think the Republicans certainly in in you know curtailing a woman's right to choose and her own bodily autonomy is is a huge problem for Republicans, but. You know, candidly, I think what Democrats, at least I, what people were seeing on the news were some of the attacks on, um, you know, kids going to school and all the things during the COVID pandemic. I think both of us, again, you know, us Democrats have something to learn as far as um, respecting people's freedoms and rights and kind of. I think, again, getting back to the part where if we can be fiscally conservative and socially liberal and just respect people for who they are. And, you know, I think either party has a little bit there we can learn from. Well, okay, I I would I would say that in answer to Steve's question about when did this happen, I would say really around the time of the Tea Party, um, that seems to me to be when we had this really serious um over hyper partisanship develop. I don't know. What do you think, Wendy? Well, uh, the as to when the this hyper partisanship really flowered fairly recently, but I think you can trace the roots of that pretty far back. Perhaps as far back as Richard Nixon's Southern strategy in running mm-hmm. for president. The and then coming forward, um, George W. Bush's presidential campaign was considered noteworthy by a lot of people because what he did was he started with the base rather than trying to expand the party's reach. He, he, worked, he worked rightward from the center rather than outward from his base, which is um, he basically ran by solidifying the base first and then worrying about other stuff later. Um, that is a trend in American politics that I think has been intensified by exactly what Andrew mentioned, gerrymandering and fundraising. Um, Gerrymandering creates safe seats so that you don't have to worry about deferring to to the views of people who might disagree with you. Uh, Also, um, our our primary system, winner-take-all elections and closed primaries, tend to increase political divisiveness and polarization. But of course, the, you're right in putting a more recent date on the time that this really flowered into the kind of hateful polarization that we see now. Uh, from the Tea Party forward, and particularly, I think, the election of Barack Obama uh, touched on the rawest nerve the rawest political nerve in all of American history, which is which is race. There are there are many many people who still think of this as a white country, uh, and they don't want to see it any other way. Uh, they are threatened, uh, worried, concerned at what they view as replacement of 
of white people by brown-skinned, black-skinned people. Uh, and I think you're seeing a reaction against that. Uh, the same kind of change has taken place in as far as gender orientation. Um, yeah, I had hoped to have Michelle Rayner on the show today to talk about all of those issues. Um, but unfortunately, she was unable to make it. People um, with with such traditional views feel like the ground is being cut out from under them, that the country they're used to is changing. Well, but Florida is unique in that we have an enormous um, immigrant population, Hispanic, Haitian, um, and I don't know, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing those uh, communities uh Power being reflected in the voting patterns out of the legislature. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think that um, maybe it's it's just the fact that uh, political consultants have 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 sought to treat all Hispanics as a monolithic voting block, as opposed to you know understanding the unique characteristics of Puerto Ricans versus Venezuelans, for example. Um, uh, but I don't, I, I don't see a unified, you know, Hispanic voting bloc um, that could potentially influence some of the legislation that would come out of the Florida legislature, like the immigra- immigration uh, issue. Andrew, um, tell us about that. Ta- talk to us about the immigration issue. It w- it, it's confusing, I think, to some people to understand exactly what happened with regard to immigration. You with us? Yeah, I think the, um, you know, overall, I think the the rhetoric is a lot worse than the actual actions from Tallahassee because I, I do think, you know, this was about uh, Governor DeSantis wanting to run for president and trying to, you know, kind of one-up uh, Greg Abbott over in, te- in, in Texas uh, for a potential future presidential primary run. So he wanted to make sure he had an immigration bill. At the end of the day, the only thing the immigration bill in Florida did was it prohibits the state from contracting with like one bus company or something like that. So um, we with with private companies, with private companies to transport unaccompanied minors to shelters in Florida. Wasn't that it? Yeah, but we we were able to change the definition so it doesn't affect uh, unaccompanied minors. But. I mean, that's an example of a bill where we were able to water it down during the process to a point where it really just didn't have a lot of uh, teeth at the end of the day. But I do think what I hope people take away from is exactly this, which is that Republicans are very much targeting immigrants as a way of solidifying their political base. And, you know, to get back to the the point Wendy made about, you know, uh, primary elections, um, you know, Republicans have to be tough on immigration for a primary race, and that means that they're willing to put actual immigrants who are the innocent innocent victims of all this in the crosshairs. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but at the same time, I do think, you know, overall, we need to stand up for immigrants. we got to stand up for, for, you know, certainly Americans and make sure that we, we do have an immigration program. I don't think anybody here is advocating for just throwing the borders open or anything like that, as they would attack us for. Um, But recognizing that Florida has very little to do with the immigration game and everything out of Tallahassee, as far as I came down to, was political rhetoric for the governor. 
Okay, I think that that's, you made a good point about uh, DeSantis needing some sort of immigration bill in order to be competitive with Greg Abbott in Texas. Um, I think that that's, that's a good point. Um, but I do think that, uh, that political consultants on both sides of the aisle have to figure out how to address the Hispanic community um, in ways that speak to each, you know, each individualized community within Spanish speakers, because I don't think that they've figured that out yet. I mean, there was an article just yesterday, I think, in the New York Times about how um, a, uh, a a priest in South Florida got into trouble for comparing um, the unaccompanied minors now at, at the southern border with uh, the Pedro Pan children who left Cuba at the time of the Castro revolution. And apparently the Pedro Pan children who are now, of course, adults, you know, didn't, didn't appreciate that comparison and, um, and thought that there was, you know, enormous differences between their experiences in fleeing communism and the experiences of the um, Hispanic children at the border, the unaccompanied minors who are fleeing, they thought, economic conditions uh, rather than um, danger. So I, I don't yeah, think I that I think we need to we need to recognize that the socialist attack hurts, right? Um, you know, there, I was looking at a district the other day where it was a Biden plus nine district that we managed to with a Democratic incumbent in it that we managed to lose by ten points last race. Wow, where was that? Eighteen point swing uh, in Hialeah in, mm. in Miami. So um, a very you know, very heavily very, Spanish district. A hundred percent, yes. And, um, you know, I, I think we need to make sure, you know, we get that, that rhetoric right because the Republicans definitely, I mean, they moved a seat 19 points in their favor. Wow. And we need to recognize that and make sure that we reverse that trend um, going forward. Because uh, right now it looks like they have the pulse and we don't and we got to fix it. Right, right. Well, Wendy, um, that that is an extraordinary example that Andrew gave. But are we seeing that around the state? Um, well, yes. I, the to begin with, the Hispanic or Latin immigrant community in the United States has never been homogenous, and in Florida, that community is less homogenous than it is elsewhere. You've You've had the conservative Cuban refugees coming in um, uh, and now um, refugees from other nations that have suffered from socialist revolutions, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and so on. And those communities are, are increasingly larger shares of the immigrant flow into Florida. Um, and while... while um, Many people in the Hispanic or Latin communities have comparatively liberal political views. Uh, they're in favor of things like good public education, good publicly available health care, uh, a good social welfare safety net system, um, uh, fair treatment for workers. These things they're in favor of, but they also they also have certain strong conservative social values. Uh, so they they aren't necessarily people who can be taken for granted by either side. Yeah, speaking of um, uh, what you said about the health uh, health system, health care uh, needs of of 
Hispanics. I mean, that's true of everyone here in Florida. And we have a potential a looming uh, Medicaid crisis that is going to throw so many Floridians off of Medicaid uh, shortly. And the legislature didn't address that either. I think that's because uh, federal funding related to COVID is going to run out. Or um, Andrew, can you fill us in on that? Andrew? Yeah, sorry. I uh, I keep muting you because I got a little feedback, so I'm trying to fix it on my end. Oh, sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. So, so yes. Um, if you turn off your radio, you don't get feedback or if you're streaming. <laughs> no, absolutely. So um, I do think we, you know, we definitely have a little bit of a lumen fix, but the, the reality is every dollar the state puts into health care is matched by the federal government at minimum one-to-one. So um, every dollar we don't put into fixing and making healthcare more affordable for Floridians is a dollar that is spent in California and Texas and New York. So um, if the Republicans wanted to deliver better health care for less money for, for our people, um, they should go ahead and expand Medicaid and, and, you know, bring in those federal dollars that are currently that we are currently turning away. All right. And uh, if you have some thoughts about this year's legislative session, please give us a call at 813-239-9663. Email us at dj at wmnf.org or text us at 813-433-0885. I can't believe the listeners of WMNF don't have some things to say about this year's legislative session, but I also think that they're probably watching Vladimir Zelensky's speech to Congress today, which is... Um, going on now or just finished um, because we have some some uh, listeners who are very interested in, in, in that as well. I know we had a show last week, I guess, with some Ukrainian students here in the U.S. who were here to talk to us about that. Um, and Andrew, you had, a, you had a proposal that Florida divest its investments in Russia um, and I assume that that was not just to show solidarity with the uh, Ukrainians in that war, but also because those investments are bad investments right now, given the U.S. sanctions in Russia. And I think there was another state, was it Tennessee or something, where the teachers' pension fund had um, had investments in in Russia that uh, that lost an enormous amount of. Of money in the recent in the recent uh, past, given the state of the war, uh, tell us about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was Kentucky. Um, oh, Kentucky. You know, they, they 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 lost a bunch. We our holdings were estimated at three hundred million dollars uh, going into the new year. So uh, hopefully, we were able to get some of our money out. But candidly, we don't know, and uh, we don't know because the Republicans refused to divest uh, Florida's retirement systems holdings uh, from Russia. And, um, you know, I, I think it's criminal. I, I agree with you that it's a bad investment. But uh, first and foremost, um, you know, the free people of the world are at war with Vladimir Putin. And uh, I don't want Floridians' retirement money being spent uh, fueling his war crimes. And unfortunately, House Republicans blocked the vote. Um, but, uh, you know, I, 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 for the life of me, I don't understand either the the policy of it or the politics, because uh, repeatedly uh, this the, the Republican Party has made stands with with Vladimir Putin in a, in a variety of ways recently. And, um, 
you know, the one tangible thing Florida could have done to to really stick it to him uh, with our three hundred million dollars was to, you know, they they chose not to do. They blinked. And um, is that you know, a matter got, of public um, accountable for it? Is is that a, a pub? Are there public records that could show us um, the performance of, uh, you know, first of all, show us the exact investments that the Florida retirement system has in Florida investments and could show us their performance? Is that a matter of public record? Could we see that? Uh, it is a matter of public record what our holdings are in. Um, the The issue that makes it complicated is, um, and you you can Google it. I mean, this is all readily Googleable. They do an annual annual and monthly reports, but the report will just say what um, what vehicle they've invested in, um, and we've invested in thousands. Each of those has invested in thousands of specific companies. Right? Mm. So there's lots of overlap between them. Somebody would have to go in and data mine all of that to see exactly what the investments are. And candidly. Um, they can change. It is actively managed. Mm-hmm. So they are making changes almost daily to the investment portfolio. So it is somewhat complicated. It's all over in the executive. And um, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of faith that uh, Governor DeSantis is is doing right by this when they're when they're blocking divestment. So well, we have a question. Uh, we have a question from Billy in Lakeland who says, "Is the don't say gay uh, a legislative bill? Is it written in stone?" Or can someone shoot it down, hopefully? I'm Billy in Lakeland, and I love your show, guys. Thank you, Billy. We appreciate that. Um, so really, um, to answer Billy's question, Andrew um, and, and Wendy j- chime in here. But the bill goes to – it's been passed now by both houses in the legislature, and now it goes to the governor for signature. So he can either sign it or veto it. Is that right? Uh, yes, I believe so, and I think he said he will sign it. Um, the um, as to whether someone could shoot it down, um, there um, at least one gay rights group, I believe, Equality Florida, I believe, has already said that they will look for an opportunity to sue to have the bill overturned. Whether that would succeed or not, I'm not a lawyer. I think it's anybody's guess. And I know that the that uh, Miguel Cardonis, the um, head of the federal department of uh, uh, education, has sent a letter uh, to Florida saying um, you can't you can't violate federal civil rights laws, or you're going to put your federal education funding in jeopardy. And I guess there's a concern that the "Don't Say Gay" bill may just do that, may uh, violate federal civil rights law. Andrew, did you hear that? I mean, I, I've heard it, and I certainly agree with it. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, unfortunately, I do agree with Wendy. I, I think the governor signing it is, is pretty much baked, but uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't hold him accountable for it. So um, everybody should contact the governor's office and tell him to use his veto authority to uh, make sure we don't pass hateful, discriminatory Legislation, right. Yeah, so that's the answer, Billy. Contact the governor's office now. He's your last hope right now, other than the courts, which, frankly, 
uh, now the Florida Supreme Court, at least, is kind of a wholly owned subsidiary of Governor DeSantis. So I don't know how much relief we'd get from that. But anyway, uh, we have a question um, from Pat in Seminole who says, please talk about budgeting the replacement of the governor's jet, which previous <laughs> Governor Scott sold since he had his own jet. And what are these elitist, egotistic jet purchases costing Floridians? Okay, who wants to take on the governor's jet? Uh, well, I, I, Andrew could correct me if I'm wrong, but I looked this up just because I was sort of interested in it. As the caller noted, Rick Scott sold the, the uh, state's jet fleet when he took office. He had his own jet. He didn't need one. He let everybody else left everybody else to their own devices and, and used his own jet. Well, since then, um, the legislature has bought... Since then, the legislature has bought the governor, uh, I think it's a refurbished turboprop of uh, a Beechcraft King Air. Uh, but this year in this budget, they included, uh, if, if my figures are right, and, and Andrew could correct me on this, $25 million to purchase two executive jets, uh, which will cost, in addition, uh, about $5.8 million per year in operating costs. Wow. Um, and these are to serve the governor, the cabinet members, I think, Supreme Court Chief Justice or possibly other justices, uh, and, uh, and some other high officials of the state. My understanding is that one of them is reserved for DeSantis. Well, yeah, and how convenient in an election year that he'll have that jet at his disposal, right? Can get you to <laughs> Iowa. Yeah, and we know that he's been fundraising uh, out of Florida. He's been to fundraisers in California and other places raising money, um, supposedly for his re-election bid. But uh, we're going to have to wrap it up in a moment here. Um, I really want to thank my guests uh, Wendy March, William March from the Tampa Bay Times, the political columnist. Uh, read him every, what, Sunday, is it? Yes. Every Sunday in the Tampa Bay Times for insights on our uh, politics in Florida. And I want to thank Andrew Learned, uh, representative from New District Number, what is it now, Andrew? 69. New District Number 69. Andrew Learned from the uh, Riverview, Brandon, Fishhawk, and now Lithia, right? Uh, area of Florida, who is running yeah, all for. All of Southeast Tillsboro. All of Southeast Tillsboro, who's now running for re election uh, in his uh, modified district. I want to thank you both for being here. I appreciate you coming in. And uh, we'll be back next week with Midpoint. Uh, Talking Animals with Duncan Strauss is up next. Please stay tuned for that. And we are WMNF Tampa. Thanks for listening. Got so many